Okay, we continue now with the discussion of the Chachaka Sutta, the six sets of six, Sutta number 148 in the Majjhima And in the discussion last week, we saw how the Buddha introduces the Sutta by mentioning six classes, each of which has six items, that is the six internal bases or the sense faculties, the six external bases or the sense objects, the six types of consciousness, six types of contact, six types of feeling, and the six types of craving. Okay, then after just introducing the six sets concisely, then he enumerates the constituents in each of the six sets. Okay, now we come to the next part of the sutta with paragraph number 10. Now the Buddha is going to give a kind of, I call it almost a logical demonstration of anatta to show that the, all of the items within the six sets of six are anatta, are not self. Okay, he begins sort of with the conclusion when he says here, if anyone says the I is self, that is not tenable, not acceptable. Okay, the reason is that the I is seen to be subject to rising and falling away, upada and vaya, originating and perishing. Now if the I were ident- is identified as self, then it would follow myself arises and falls away. And since it's almost nonsensical to maintain myself arises and falls away, then it would not be acceptable to say that the I is self. Because what lies implicit in the idea of self is the notion of permanence or persistence. For something to be self, it has to be permanent, lasting, stable. If something passes away, then it's impermanent. And if it's impermanent, then one cannot say, this is myself. That is, the Buddha here, he's sort of drawing out the implication, what is implied in the idea of self. Of course, we can use the idea, the term self, the notion of self, just as a conventional term, as a convenient device for speaking about myself as distinct from other people. And if it, as long as the word self is used with this understanding that it's just a conventional notion, then it is acceptable. It's quite a valid usage. But the Buddha here is 
attacking the notion of self that is the basis for clinging. When we cling to our body and mind, what we're clinging to is not some conventional designation, but the idea of something that I really am, something that is my true identity, my true permanent essence, my true essence. And for something to be my true essence, what I really am, then it must be lasting, must be stable. And so the notion of this, or this metaphysical notion of self, or even the psychological self, this permanent being that I am, this being that I truly am, this essential nature of myself, this is closely tied up with the idea of permanence, and actually it's dependent on the notion of permanence, since if something is seen to be impermanent, then we don't want to identify with it, because when that thing passes away, then it would mean myself has passed away. And if myself passes away, <laughs> then we have the problem, and who is here <laughs> aware that the self has passed away? Then it becomes nonsensical. Okay, so the idea of self gets stamped upon everything that we experience, everything that makes up our experience. And so now the Buddha is going to go through virtually every element of experience, applying the same basic argument in order to demonstrate that these things that we identify with, all of the sankharas or the phenomena, the dhammas of body and mind, are not self. Okay, now the interesting question comes up. The sutta says, the rise and fall of the eye of discernment. But how is it discerned, seeing that the eye is subject to rise and fall? It seems if we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see that the eye is something which is Maybe not, we can't say permanent, but it seems to be continuing. Every day we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see basically the same eye there. But this notion, this eye that we see in the mirror, the eyes of other people that we see with our own eyes, this is really just a kind of appearance which is superimposed upon the actuality of the eye. And to understand what is really meant by the eye, we have to use a kind of method of analysis in order to dissect the eye into its components. Now what we see here, what we touch here, is called in the commentaries, it's called the compounded eye. This means the eye as a physical sense organ. And this compounded eye 
is made up of the this is according to the Abhidhamma way of explanation it's made up of first the four primary elements it has a certain amount of hardness that is the earth element a certain cohesion or moistness that is the water element it maintains a certain degree of temperature a certain temperature a degree of bodily heat that's the heat element and there's a certain amount of movement oscillation taking place that is the air element so within this compounded eye we have the four primary elements then we have according to the Abhidhamma four secondary types of material phenomena first there is a color blue, brown, whatever, white, white then there is a scent, smell then there is the taste of course we don't know the taste since <laughs> we don't eat our eyes <laughs> but the taste is there and then the eighth ingredient is said to be it's called oja which means nutritive essence this is the ability of the eye to serve as food though we don't eat our eyes <laughs> but we understand if an animal were to eat us then it would devour the eyes swallow them and the eyes would give some kind of nutritive sustenance to the animal I hear the, the phrase tell it to the crow is appropriate yeah yeah the crow eats the eyes yeah yeah okay then the ninth ingredient is the life faculty of vitality that which keeps the eye as part of a living organ then the tenth ingredient is really what is called in the technical terminology this is the chaku basada which means visual sensitivity eye sensitivity this is the element in the eye the particular material property of the eye by reason of which we are able to distinguish forms this is the material type of material substance in the eye which is sensitive to light and color perhaps in modern physiological terms it would correspond to the rods and the the or the at least to the retina the rods and cones are in the retina yeah. as well. okay now these ten material phenomena that make up the compound eye in the Abhidhamma it's called the eye decad which means decad is ten so it's the ten components of the eye and the eye faculty with that part of the eye which functions as the actual sense faculty this is the eye sensitivity but all ten of these components of the eye are always arising and passing away this is something that one doesn't see with one's 
gross sense faculties, but it's something that becomes evident one, when one engages in the practice of mindfulness or insight meditation, vipassana bhavana. Then, when the mindfulness is very well developed and the mind becomes very precisely tuned to what is happening in the moment, then if one attends to the eye and focuses upon the eye, one experiences all of the components of the eye as constantly arising and passing, arising and passing away. And so when one sees the arising and passing away of the eye, then one can understand that even that eye faculty that subtle matter which is sensitive to lights and colors, this too is arising and passing away. Okay, then the same is applied to the ear, I'm sorry, to forms. Okay, if anybody says that forms are self Again, that could not be accepted because forms are also arising and falling away. Again, when one looks at a form as a solid object, for example, one looks at this microphone, it seems to be a solid object, to be something lasting. But in fact, these objects that we see are also compounds of different elements, different rupa dhammas, different material phenomena. So the so-called microphone is a compound, again, of the four material elements, the four primary elements. It also has the four secondary elements, um, color, the form, smell, taste, though I wouldn't eat it, <laughs> and it has some kind of nutritive essence, though again nobody will eat it, but if it were to disintegrate, then it would turn into soil, and soil will become nutriment for plants, and so there's something within this metal which has a nourishing quality. Okay, uh, th this material object is made up simply of those eight gross of those eight material constituents. There's no life faculty in it and no sensitive quality. <laughs> well, actually the microphone does have a kind of sensitive quality. <laughs> the quality of being sensitive to sounds. <laughs> but it's not a living sensitive quality, it's an electronic sensitive quality. <laughs> but anyway, the f one of those ingredients that make up the microphone is called the rupayatana. That is the form base. And that is the only element of the microphone that falls under form here, visible form. And this visible form appears to us to be a kind of solid mass. For example, I see the gray part of the microphone is something extended stable, apparently lasting through time. 
and again this black band again looks to be something stable, extended, enduring through time. But when the mind gets very, very sharply tuned through the development of mindfulness and focuses upon visual objects with that very subtle sensitivity that comes through repeated development of mindfulness, then one sees even the visible forms to be in a constant process of arising and passing arising and passing. If one keeps the mind in that particular state and focuses just upon the visual, visible, the visual field, the visual field itself is constantly arising and breaking up and passing away. So that everything one sees is disintegrating. And so because there is this disintegration, this arising, passing away, and disintegration, then visible forms, even the form of this body, cannot be identified as self. Okay, next comes eye consciousness. Eye consciousness is the particular function of awareness, or it is that particular type of awareness by which one cognizes, knows, becomes aware of a visible form. This eye consciousness arises based on the eye, the eye as its faculty, and based on form as its object. And its function is simply to see a form. As I explained last week, it doesn't know the form. Knowing the form is the function of mano-vinyana, mind consciousness. The eye consciousness just takes the colored form that impinges upon the eye and makes it available to mind consciousness. It's just a kind of momentary experience of recording, we would say, a visible form, of allowing a visible form to enter the range of mind. Is there something so ignorant in the way? Even if the eye is then there won't be eye consciousness. No. In fact, I would say... You won't even see anything with that eye. Yeah. I think speaking in modern physiological terms, I think one might even include the, the optic nerve in the eye faculty. Perhaps even one could take even the part of the brain which is sensitive to the... Um, which receives the optic data from the optic nerve, even that could be included in the eye faculty. Yes, even that is damaged, then you won't see anything. Then one won't have eye consciousness. Yes. So. Yeah. Okay, so eye consciousness is subject to arising and passing away. Even when we see an object, then the eye consciousness seems to be lasting for some time. For example, if I'm looking at the clock, and I'm, well, the clock doesn't have enough interest, but 
if I'm looking out the window, let's say a beautiful scene out the window, maybe a nice view of the lake, then it seems that I'm continuing to look at the lake for some time. But what is actually happening, if one could really sort of tune in to the flow of consciousness or to the stream of consciousness, one will see many different acts of consciousness, even with the same object, the same sense faculty, arising and passing, arising and passing. Then the Abhidhamma gives a rather complicated account of perception, so that even when we seem to be looking at, say, the lake for 30 seconds, what is happening over and over is that at one moment the eye consciousness is arising, that is replaced by another type of consciousness, that by another type of consciousness, then after a certain number of chitas, the mind stream drops into the subconscious, then comes out again, again sees the lake, again drops into the unconscious, again comes out, and yet this is happening so quickly that it seems that we're just standing there nonchalantly watching the lake. But actually, many, many times, even in a single second, different types of consciousness are arising, falling away, replaced by other types of consciousness which arise and fall away. Okay, so even though eye consciousness appears to last for some time, if one attends to it closely with mindfulness and attention, with yoniso manasikara, with wise attention, then one sees that the eye consciousness is constantly coming into being and falling away. So for this reason, the I-consciousness cannot be self. Okay, then I-contact. The I-contact is the coming together of the I-consciousness with the object through the sense faculty. And since the three factors that make contact are impermanent, subject to fall away, then eye contact is also impermanent, falling away. So therefore the eye contact cannot be self. Then through eye contact there arises a feeling. Feeling arises along with the eye contact. It is conditioned by the eye contact and when the eye contact ceases that feeling falls away so feeling cannot be suffered then if anyone says craving is suffered then if we examine craving the craving that arises through the eye or form this is called rupa tanha craving for form. This craving is a momentary event, even though we might be craving for something over and we might seem to be craving for some form for some time. 
somebody sees a beautiful picture and is enjoying it, looking at it with some kind of attachment, but that craving is actually a momentary event which arises, passes away, followed by another moment of craving, by another. And so craving too is subject to arising and falling away. And so craving cannot be self. If craving were to be called self, then craving would be, <laughs> then the self would be subject to arising and falling away. But that is not acceptable. I think maybe this craving gives rise to the idea of self in a very strong way. How is that? Yeah, because uh, somehow it is lust which has the need for a certain kind of ownership idea, mastership idea. Then it becomes a kind of philosophical reaction, asimana, then ahankara. In that way, the, in that way, that the eye illusion is born. Another aspect of it is the, the fallacy of mastership over these organs and over these forms and over these phenomena. This is maybe the most fatal thing that we get this idea with the idea of self that we also have a certain mastery over these things, that they are going according to form and factors. Yeah, I think Venable Sumeda made a very important point, and actually I think that might actually explain why the Buddha takes the sequence of the six sixes as far as craving and stops there because the reason what sort of underlies the, what underlies the identification with everything that comes earlier as self the sense faculties, the objects, the consciousness and so on what underlies this identification with self is the craving to own this body and mind and to use it as the instrument for continued experience. This is why the Buddha calls craving bono bhavika, the craving that leads on to repeated existence. And so craving through craving, we hold to this body and mind, these five aggregates, or these six sense faculties. We hold to them, we identify with them, and take them to be self, then when death takes place, the craving is still there. And through that craving, then we grasp a new type of existence and take, undergo rebirth or renewed becoming. And so what underlies the whole process of repeated existence or samsara is craving. And the reason why, for the way in which craving holds to this body and mind is by identifying them as this is mine, this am I, this is myself. And so when the Buddha takes the sequence as far as craving, 
and, and shows first that each of the earlier things is not self, then with each demonstration the eye is not self, forms are not self, then craving has to give up its hold on those things because they're no longer myself. It's just like the Buddha says, they are like the trees and jaitas grow. We don't say, those are myself, but the trees, the branches, the foliage, it's not mine, not I. So now with this demonstration that the sense bases, sense objects are not self, when we see that they're not self, then craving doesn't hold on to them. But craving still remains sort of absorbed within, at the deepest level, absorbed in itself. This we could call, maybe using a Freudian term, primary narcissism. <laughs> primary narcissism, the love of craving for itself. And so now the Buddha sort of, in order to drive craving out from that hiding place, he demonstrates that craving itself is anatta. Craving is not self. Then when one sees that craving arises and passes away, then there's nothing that can be held on to. And even the craving falls away from that absorption with itself. So you would say that Descartes' statement is Nazism. Because we start with raga tamna, asmimana, mahankara, kovito ergo sum. Okay, so this same basic method of argument continues as far as the mind, mind objects, mind consciousness, born of mind contact and dhamma the craving for mental objects. Okay, basically the whole sutta, that part of the whole sutta is all repetition. Okay, now when you read, then you can read and reflect upon how the argument will apply to each of these, but there's nothing more for me to say. <laughs> Okay, now we come to paragraph 16, where the Buddha is now going to show, to introduce a new sort of approach to this situation. And he now is demonstrating the way leading to the origination of personality. What is the word translated personality here is Sakaya which maybe is better translated, now I use a translation, identity, because personality tends to suggest my character. Like we say, this person has a cheerful personality, this one has an aggressive personality, this one has a gloomy personality, but that's not the sense intended by this word, sakaya. Sakaya means rather what we identify with, what we take our identity to consist in. And so the word Sakaya means the five aggregates subject to clinging. 
the Pali word here is Sakaya. Okay, so what our personal identity consists in, according to the Buddha's teaching, are the five aggregates of clinging, Panchupadana Kanda. So one might also explain it, but I don't think the text, the suttas ever use this explanation, but one could also explain it in terms of these six sixes. These also make up personal identity. These six sixes are actually the same as the five aggregates, but from a different angle. Okay, now the Buddha is going to show the way leading to the origination of, of identity. How it is that these five aggregates come into being from one existence to the next. And the way they come into being, according to this passage, is through the identification with the five, with these six sixes. Through identification with them and appropriation of them. That is, taking the five, taking any of these six sixes to be mine, that is appropriation, making it our property. And the other way is by identification, taking it to be I or myself. So, beginning with the I, one regards the I thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. One regards forms thus, eye consciousness thus, eye contact thus, feeling born of eye contact thus, and the craving performs thus. One regards, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. This way of regarding these objects, this is Sakaya Ditti, what's called personality view or identity view. In other words, it is the view which identifies any kind of object in the body or mind as being a self or the property of the self. And the commentary explains that this short passage here shows the first two noble truths of the Four Noble Truths. We have two Noble Truths here. The first Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of Dukkha, of suffering. That Noble Truth consists of any of the six sixes themselves, because everything within the five aggregates, within the body and mind, that is the Noble Truth of suffering. And this way of regarding the noble, the different elements of the six sixes, this identification view or identity view, 
this here is the way leading to the origin of personality. In other words, this is the second noble truth, the truth of the origin of suffering. Okay, then the next passage shows how there comes the cessation of identity. In other words, the ending of the round of rebirths. The cutting off of this continuity of existence after existence. And that is called here, it's the way leading to the cessation of identity. And that is the particular path of practice one regards the any of the six sixes as being not mine, not I, not myself. The text just fills this out for all 36 items. So here we have by this regarding the six sixes as being not self, here we have the development of what's called anatta-sanya, the perception of non-self through the development of insight. And one arrives at this insight into the selfless nature of the six sexes through attending to the impermanence, to their impermanence. When one discerns the arising and passing away of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so on, then one sees that the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind are not mine, not, not myself. And according to the commentary, the, this little passage here represents the third and fourth noble truths. The third noble truth is what? Cessation of suffering. So that means the cessation of the six sixes. And the fourth noble truth is what? The way to the cessation of suffering. Usually the Buddha explains it as the complete Noble Eightfold Path, but here he's really just compressed the whole path into this way of insight contemplation based on the characteristic of not-self. Okay, with this passage on the origin and cessation of identity, in a way that is a complete teaching in itself, because it shows the way to liberation just through this development of the insight into selflessness. But now the Buddha takes another approach to the same issue. Again, he's going to show how we have bondage and suffering through certain defilements and how we come to liberation through the abandoning of these defilements. But now the Buddha uses a different framework. He takes the framework of what, are called, what is called in Pali the anusayas. This word means the latent tendencies or underlying tendencies. 
And it seems that the reason why this sutta includes two different presentations of the same thing is because the Buddha sometimes uses or shows the origination of suffering through two different sequences which have a different emphasis. One, from one angle, we can look at the origination of suffering through what we can call cognitive distortion or mental error. In this sequence, we begin with abhijja, ignorance. Ignorance leads to wrong views, distorted views, and from these distorted views, we have bondage and suffering. The other sequence takes it from a more emotional angle. Here we take the root of bondage to be tanha, craving. This craving turns into clinging or grasping, attachment, and then through that attachment, suffering arises. So it seems in the first sequence here in this sutta, which emphasizes from paragraph 16 to 27, the Buddha is developing the sequence through ignorance, wrong views, and suffering. And now, though ignorance is mentioned in this passage on the underlying tendencies, but the particular approach or angle is that where craving is dominant and craving leads to clinging and clinging leads to suffering. Okay, so now the Buddha is showing how the underlying tendencies originate. Here, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meaning of the three is contact, With contact as condition, there arises a feeling which may be pleasant, painful, or neutral. Okay, now when there is a pleasant feeling, then one delights in it, welcomes it, and holds to it. In that case, the underlying tendency to lust, raganusya, lies behind us, lies behind us. That is because one has lust, craving for pleasant feeling. So this underlying tendency towards lust, this is always dormant in the mind. But when we meet with pleasant experiences, then that tendency becomes activated and we hold to cling to the pleasant experience. When one experiences a painful feeling, then one becomes upset, one experiences sorrow, one undergoes grief, lamentation, and at the extreme end, one weeps, beating one's breast, why me? Why me? Ayo. <laughs> and then one goes out of one's mind. You see this at funerals. 
Okay, when this happens, then what underlies it is the tendency to patika, aversion, dislike, repugnance. One rebels against one's circumstances. What is that? Vaisha. It's very similar to Vaisha, yeah, to dosa. It's really just another term for dosa. Okay, so in this case, it's the underlying tendency to aversion which is activated. Okay, then when one when one experiences a neutral feeling, something neither pleasant nor painful, then one does not understand how it arises, how it passes away. One doesn't understand its gratification, the danger in it, and the escape from it. All of that is not understanding, that is ignorance. And so in relation to this neutral feeling, the underlying tendency of ignorance lies dormant and becomes activated. Okay, then once the Buddha, all of this, the text is so evident that it really needs no explanation. Then the Buddha says, that one shall hear and or painful feeling and the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to the neutral feeling without abandoning those underlying tendencies without abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge it is impossible to make an end of suffering okay then the same thing is developed for all of the other faces okay so here we have again the two first two noble truths but here the noble truth of suffering that is represented by just by the word suffering itself when the Buddha says that one will make an end of suffering their suffering is just represented by itself and the cause or origin of suffering is specified as the three underlying tendencies lust, aversion, and ignorance or delusion. Okay, then comes the opposite side, the positive side, the abandoning of the underlying tendencies. Again, it's the same sequence. The eye informs up through feeling. I think one experiences the feeling felt as pleasant, painful, or neutral. Okay, when one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one does not delight in it, does not welcome it, does not hold to it, then one is overcoming the underlying tendency to lust. Okay, now the Buddha is showing the kind of freedom from this emotional bondage. When one is touched by the painful feeling, if one doesn't become afflicted with sorrow, grief, and lamentation, then 
the underlying tendency to aversion does not lie within. When one is touched by a neutral feeling, if one understands its origin and passing away, the gratification, danger, and escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying tendency to ignorance does not lie within. Here, the way I would I would understand this passage to be rather compressed, since in the early stages one will undergo pleasant, painful, neutral experience, and the tendencies are still present. But what one has to do is restrain these tendencies from becoming active. Then, as one restrains them through right reflection, through wise attention, through mental discipline, then one develops more and more the ability to withstand the storms of desire, aversion, and the mists of ignorance. And when one dispels the storms of desire and aversion, dispels the mist of ignorance, then one comes to this clarity of mind on the basis of which one develops insight. And it is through the development of insight, vipassana or prajna or wisdom, that one uproots the underlying tendencies so that they are cut off at the root and no longer remain within. Okay, so then the Buddha now he's speaking in relation in with reference to the case of one who has totally eliminated the underlying tendencies, that is the arahant. He says that one shall here and now make an end of suffering by abandoning the underlying tendency to lust or pleasant feelings by abolishing the underlying tendency to aversion or painful feelings, by extirpating the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neutral feelings, by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, this is possible. And so on for the other basis. And here we have the third and fourth noble truth. The third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering, that is shown by the expression, one shall here and now make an end of suffering. And the way to the, to the cessation of suffering, that is shown by abandoning the underlying tendency. Okay, then the Buddha sort of after sort of explaining all of this, now he goes back, since he turns the teaching back, since with the passage that just ended, he's described the disciple who's made an end of suffering. But now he goes back to a disciple who's still on the path, and he says, Seeing thus, the well taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms 
disenchanted with eye consciousness, disenchanted with eye contact, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with craving. Okay, so on with all the other bases. Being disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated, and he understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to back to any state of being. Okay, then the ending here is very important. When the Buddha finished speaking, the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words, and while this discourse was being spoken, through not clinging the mind of Sixty bhikkhus were liberated from the taint. Then the commentary doesn't remain satisfied with this, but the commentary says that when many of the great Mahateras like Venerable Sariputta, Mahamogalana, and so on, they also gave discourses based on the sutta, and each time they gave discourses, then sixty months were liberated from the pain. Then even after the Dhamma came to Sri Lanka, when Arahant Mahinda gave sermons based on this discourse, then the minds of sixty monks were liberated by the pain. And there was one famous monk, I read the passage last week, the elder, the elder named Maliadeva, he, who was living in Sri Lanka, he taught the sutta in 60 places, and each time he taught it, 60 bhikkhus attained arahantya. But there was one who even surpassed him. This was the Tripitaka master named Shula Naga. It said he taught this sutta to a vast assembly of human beings and devas, and at the end of the discourse, a thousand bhikkhus attained arahantya, and amongst the devas who were present, only one remained a worldling. Now, when Bhikkhu Bodhi taught this course <laughs> <laughs> at the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka, how many bhikkhus attained our hardship? <laughs> How many householders entered the paths of fruits? <laughs> we are sitting here, we are not sitting there, no. otherwise maybe we would have to chat. <laughs> anyway, we keep on trying. Okay, any comments? Uh, comment on the illustration. Yeah. Maybe the word anusya. And art is something where you are not repeating what you see. It is made visible what you don't see. And Anusya we can't see, but we make it visible by imagining a sleeping city. If you have gone from a hill and you see a sleeping city, you see a sleeping, sleeping city, it is a very fine picture to imagine the Anusya. And suppose they have some antennas, and when there is a 
happening outside, then it rings the bell and uh, those concomitants are yeah. creeping up. So it's always good to have a picture of things which we don't know by our vision. Yeah. Make it and then we know Anusya, the sleeping tendency, the sleeping city. Mm. Uh, that's the only little illustration for a word. <laughs> so maybe I could fill in <laughs> the illustration of a city <laughs> even more. Okay, there's in every city, at least every big city in America, there's a certain section called the Pleasure District. <laughs> this is like in New York City, it's Times Square, where you have the movie theaters, dance halls, um, theaters, <laughs> other forms of pleasurable entertainment. Okay, so during the daytime, that part of the city is pretty much asleep. I mean, there are people walking back and forth, but nothing really is going on. But when darkness falls and all of the theaters turn on their lights, then the music halls start and you get different types of music. The dance halls start and people start pouring in for the dancing and all the entertainment takes place. That is like the Raganusia becomes activated. And the other parts of the city are known as rather dangerous areas where people from the outside don't go into these parts of the city. We call them there the slums, where usually there are gangs hanging around, gangs of yachts, drug addicts, um, criminals. And so, if no outsider is going by, then the <coughs> dangerous section is pretty quiet. But if, say, members of one gang trespass on the territory of members of another gang, then the guns come out, the shooting starts, and killing and mayhem starts. Then, in certain parts of the city, these are like the quiet residential areas, where people live quite comfortably, they get up in the morning. This okay, this violent part of the city, the dangerous part, that is like the patika anusya, the tendency to aversion. Which, as long as there is no painful feeling, then it's quiet. But when one has some unpleasant experience, then it pulls out the guns and starts shooting or else it becomes upset and starts weeping. Then the Abhijanusya, the latent tendency to ignorance, that is like this quiet residential area. People get up in the morning, go to work, come back in the evening, eat their supper, watch television, <laughs> drink some beers or wine, get drowsy, then fall asleep and do this day after day without ever thinking anything about what is the reason, what is the meaning of life, why are we going through this, is there any kind of higher happiness in life, but they're just content with their day-to-day -day routine. That is the latent tendency to ignorance.
Actually, that's right, there you are. It's actually another thing for the for the unwholesome roots. Lust is the same as loba, greed. Patika is the same as dosa, hatred. And abhija is the same as moha, delusion. Just the Buddha uses different terms, you know, maybe just to show different aspects of the same thing. Okay, are there any more questions? Okay, next time we will take the last sutta in the Majjhimunikaya. That is sutta number 153, the development of the faculty. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.